Again, thank you guys for being here, and thanks for, again, fighting through the room situation. We really appreciate you doing that. Um, if you have your Bibles with you, I'd like for you to turn with me in them to Ruth chapter 3. We're going to continue the series that we began a few weeks ago uh, called The Outsider, and uh, we left off just a couple of weeks ago at Ruth chapter 2. We're going to pick up in Ruth chapter 3. I want to thank David Hampton for speaking for me last week. I thought David did a phenomenal job, and I really appreciated him doing that. also want to thank all of the people who volunteered with the Community One Project yesterday. Thank you guys for coming out to do that. Really appreciate that. We had, a, we had a great day. We got a lot accomplished. Also want to thank the volunteers who ran in the Race for the Cure yesterday for City Church. Thank you guys for doing that. Thanks for representing so well for City Church. And uh, again, we'll be back in our bigger room uh, next week. April 8th, 1966. Uh, first time in his history. Time Magazine ran a cover that had no picture on the front of it. It's the first time they'd ever done that. No picture on the front of this cover. The cover was just black. It had red letters, and it was asking the question, uh, is God dead? And I realized that there are many of us here who weren't born in 1966. Of course, I wasn't around in 1966 either. Uh, You're not supposed to laugh at that. Uh, And so I realized that because I'm talking about something in 1966, a magazine in 1966, some of you are going, A, what is a magazine? You don't know what that is. And B, you're wondering how in the world anything from 1966 could possibly be relevant in the 21st century. Well, you need to know that in 2008, the LA Times named that 1966 cover of Time magazine, named it one of the top 10 magazine covers in history that shook the world. The question, is God dead?, was a reference, of course, to Friedrich Nietzsche's uh, often quoted postulate that God is dead. But the article that accompanied uh, that cover really was referring to a more modern movement. And it described itself in this way. Listen to this. Nietzsche's thesis, in fact, you can read along with me. me. Nietzsche's thesis was that striving self-centered man had killed God. And that settled that. The current death of God group believes that God is absolutely, is indeed absolutely dead, but, but proposes to carry on and write a theology without theos, which is the Greek word for God. So they're wanting to write a theology without God. Now notice the distinction. Where Nietzsche, on the one hand, postulated that God is dead, therefore there's no need for theology. You know, he's like, God's dead, no need for theology, that settles that. This particular movement said, yes, we agree that God is dead, but we think we can still build a theology without God. And that seems odd, right? I mean, how in the world could you build a theology without God? But I would offer to you that, in fact, tremors from that theological earthquake that shook the world in 1966 are still being felt in 2013 in Europe and North America. There are now churches all over Europe and North America, seminaries as well, in which for all practical purposes, uh, God is dead. And, uh, and yet that hasn't stopped them from trying to build a theology without God. You can hear sermons and you can hear lessons about human virtue and human goodness and human morality, but you will never hear Jesus' name mentioned in those churches. So what they have done is that they've constructed a theology without God. Now, in, in stark contrast, Ruth chapter 3 is going to speak to us about the necessity of a hope in a living God. And it's going to speak to us about the inescapable relationship between that hope and, and, and the kind of explosive transformation that we need as a human race to escape the gravitational pull of sin that destroys uh, individuals, it destroys families, it destroys whole cities and nations. 
And specifically what you're going to see here in Ruth chapter 3. Let me just lay this out for you, then we'll walk back through it. But I want you to get the three points right off the bat. Here's what you're going to see. You're going to see in Ruth chapter 3 that hope in a living God does three things. That it frees you to live beyond your circumstances. You're going to see that it turbocharges your friendships. And you're going to see that it catapults you across cultural boundary markers. Those are the three things you're going to see. Free to, it's going to, hope in a living God is going to free you to live beyond your circumstances. It's going to turbocharge your friendships. And it will catapult you across culturally boundary markers. Okay, now let me just give you, let's go back. Let's get a little review of what's happened so far in the book of Ruth. In chapter 1, you have a Jewish woman by the name of Naomi who's living in a foreign land called Moab. And she's in deep despair. I think it's fair to say that she's absolutely despondent over the death of her husband and the death of her uh, two married sons. One of her daughters-in-law, young lady by the name of Ruth, and we're continually reminded by the text that Ruth is an outsider, that she's from Moab. Ruth makes a stunning uh, oath of allegiance to Naomi and to Naomi's God. And she says, I'm going to return to Israel with you, Naomi, in spite of the fact that for all intents and purposes, uh, doing so means a life of poverty and complete loneliness as a widow. She will never marry. For all she knows, she will never be able to marry. And she will live uh, with her mother-in-law in deep poverty. But by the end of chapter 2, there is this glimmer of hope that begins to shine through the clouds of Naomi's despair. A wealthy and godly older man by the name of Boaz, who just happens to be, who just happens to be related to Naomi's husband, has shown profound generosity to Naomi's daughter-in-law, Ruth. And perhaps, perhaps, he has even subtly signaled that he would be willing to serve as their kinsman redeemer. And if you were with us, if you've been with us throughout this series, you'll remember that this idea of a kinsman, uh, that's a relative, a kinsman redeemer, uh, that whole idea is a legal provision in Israel that was intended to provide for impoverished families like, like this one. So here's what we're going to do. Let's pick up the story in Ruth chapter 3. Let's begin reading from verse 1. And then we'll go ahead and we'll go through and we'll see all the things that hope in a living God can do uh, for you. One day, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you uh, where you will be well provided for? She's talking to Ruth here. She says, Is not Boaz, with whose servant girls you have been, a kinsman of ours? Tonight it will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. These are all, by the way, activities related to harvesting. And so she says to her, wash and perfume yourself. Put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor. But don't let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. And when he lies down, note the place where he's lying. And then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. Ruth says, I will do whatever you say. So she went down to the threshing floor and she did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. Okay, here's the first point that I want to make today is just that, is, like I said, that hope in a living God frees you to live beyond your circumstances. Hope in a living God frees you to live beyond your circumstances. Did you notice in this passage that this is the first time, those of you who've been with us, this is the first time since returning to Israel that Naomi has taken any initiative at all with respect to her predicament. Did you notice that? This is the first time. Up to this point, it's all been Ruth. It's all been Ruth taking initiative. But now suddenly in chapter 3, Naomi takes some initiative 
uh, in her circumstances. And she asks the question, shouldn't I try to find a home for you? Uh, Isn't Boaz our redeemer? Now here's the question, why the change? What is it that's caused Naomi suddenly to be able to move out of despondency, maybe even just to get out of her bed, and to contribute to some plan here to get out of the situation that they're in? What's, 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 cha- what's changed? You know, one of the things happens, when, when tragedy blindsides us in the manner that it's blindsided Naomi in this, in this book, what happens is that we tend to let our circumstances define our reality, Right? And our circumstances always tell us in those situations that there can't possibly be uh, a God who cares. Whether, whether you believe in God or not, our circumstances always tell us in those situations that there can't possibly be a God who cares. He must be dead. And um, because he's dead, there's no hope. And with that hopelessness, a kind of despair and despondency begins to settle in, which makes perfect sense, of course, because if there is no God, there is no greater purpose in this tragedy. There's not going to be any redemption of this tragedy. There's not going to be any comfort for you in the middle of this tragedy. There's no greater strength in the middle of this tragedy upon which you can rely to help you through this. And so consequently, what happens is that people with no hope, hopeless people, are unable to make any plans or to move move purposefully into the future. But what changes, here's what changes in Naomi's life. What changes is chapter 2. Because in chapter 2, Ruth just happens to land in this man named Boaz's fields who treats her with a unique kindness... And he just happens to turn out to be a kinsman redeemer. And with all of this apparent coincidence, suddenly Naomi gets this glimmer of hope that perhaps God is still alive. Perhaps he is still working in her life, despite what all of her circumstances tell her. Suddenly God is alive to Naomi, and she begins to hope again. Regardless of the fact that her circumstances tell her there's no reason for hope. This past week, um, as I was studying this, this passage, a friend of mine um, had no idea. He had no idea I was, I was studying this passage, and he tweeted this out, and I, I love what he said. he said. He said, until we walk with despair and still have hope, we will not know our hope was just in ourselves. And he is so right, isn't he? Let me read that again. Until we walk with despair and still have hope, uh, we will not know that our hope was just in ourselves. Look, if God is dead, if God is dead, all you have to hope in is yourself. And I'll tell you that that might... That hope in yourself that might get you a little ways down the road in life. But I can promise you that at some point, life is going to blindside you in the same way that it has Naomi. Maybe not in exactly the same way, but it will blindside you in some way, shape, or form. And you are going to be incapacitated. And you're going to realize that if, if you are all that you have to hope in, um, that you're hopeless. 
which is where some people choose to live their entire lives. They slowly become cynical, uh, just going through the motions of life, always victims of their circumstances. And I would tell you that it's only those who hope in a living God, a living God who is watching, who is aware, who is moving, it is only those people who can honestly grieve their tragic circumstances and yet still at the same time move purposefully into the future with a vision for their future that exceeds human accounting. I was writing this past week. I blogged this past week. Uh, some of you know this. I blogged this past week about the city of Evansville needing an aggressive vision for its future. And I asked someone yesterday uh, why Evansville seems to struggle with vision so much. And this guy said, he said, well, we have a lot of cave people here. And by, what, and by, by cave people, what he meant, he, citizens against virtually everything. And... Uh, <laughs> I told him that I'd pastored a few churches that had Christians against virtually everything, but that's a completely different story. This, this, city, this city needs some people who hope in a living God, who believe that God loves this city and loves the people in it, and who believe it so much that they can be for something and not just against everything. And if you'll notice around the rooms, we have around the room, on both sides, we have these four banners. These four banners represent... Um, our understanding of the spiritual growth process. And they all culminate, the last phrase is, is change the city. We want to change the city. But they begin with the word believe. Because if you don't believe in a living God, then you have no reason, you have no power for one, but you also have no motivation to really change a city. Changing Evansville begins with the belief that there is a living God who cares about this city. And that belief then translates into hope for the future. And that hope translates into doing something positive uh, to change the city. And I would just like to say, those people that I worked with yesterday, in the community run one project, those are people who had hope in a living God. They were hopeful people. Uh, those of you who ran in the Coleman Race for the Cure, that's a sign of hope and a living God, you're, you're demonstrating your hope to change the city. But I want to tell you something. We need to do more than those kinds of things. We need to think a lot bigger uh, as a church and as a city. And I tell you, one of the things that we need, one of the things that we need are visionary people in this church who would become leaders in this city who would hold our leaders in this city accountable to having a future, to having an aggressive vision for the future of the city of Evansville. Look, I'm going to tell you something. You take a look. This is not meant in any way, shape, or form to be uh, mean-spirited, but it's just reality. You take a look around this city, and you can get really depressed from just looking at this place and, and considering the issues that this city is dealing with and facing and the problems that are facing this community. I want to tell you that hope-filled people, people that have a hope in a living God, are able to look at reality, but they're also able to say, that reality does not define or dictate the future. I believe that we can have a vision for a future of the city of Evansville because I hope in a living God. We need people in this church who would be willing to say, I'm willing to be a leader. I'm willing to have a hope in a future for the city of Evansville. I'm willing to be a part of developing an aggressive, an aggressive vision for the city of Evansville. And I'm willing to hold my leaders accountable to developing an aggressive vision for the city of Evansville. Hope in a living God 
frees you to live beyond the immediacy of your circumstances, no matter how tragic they are, no matter how difficult the problems seem. Hope in a living God enables you to live beyond that because you believe that there is a God who is moving and who cares, who cares about you, who cares about the people in your life, who cares about the people in your city and community, and that he has a vision for it. Will you tap into that vision? And so Naomi makes a plan. Because she's hoping in a living God. And so she says, hey, Ruth, uh, let's get you cleaned up. You need a makeover, girlfriend. And so she says, she says, get your hair done. Get your nails done. Put some perfume on. It's time for us to see if we can move this Boaz along. Guys kind of tend to move slowly in things. You know what I'm talking about, ladies? Can I get an amen in that? Amen. That wasn't a very hearty amen. Can I get an amen in that? Guys tend to move slowly. And so Ruth, Naomi tells her what to do. So Ruth does all that Naomi tells her to do. She takes note of where Boaz lays down. She uncovers his feet. She lays down at his feet. All of this is a sign of humility and servanthood. That's what it was intended to signify. And I want you to watch what happens. Skip down to verse 8. Verse 8. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. And he turned and discovered a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a kinsman redeemer. Now just uh, hold on for a minute. Uh, We're going to read on, but just hold on for a minute because I know how some of you are interpreting this whole thing. It all feels, it all sounds because you're interpreting it through our grid in 2013 uh, America. It it all sounds very sexy and very seductive, doesn't it? But but that's that's really not what's happening here. What's happening here is something that you can't, see on the surface. Uh, The Hebrew word that's translated garment here is the same word that Boaz used back in chapter 2 when he said to Ruth, he said, listen, you don't even have to look it up. Just just let me read it to you. He says, may you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings, it's the same word, wings, garment, same word, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So here's what's happened. Remember that back in chapter 2, Ruth came home, told Naomi all about her encounter with Boaz, right? And would have included this statement. Here's what Boaz said. And so Naomi does, and I don't mean to be sexist here, but Naomi does what a a lot of women will do. Uh, She goes home and she starts processing uh, all that this guy said and starts trying to figure out what all of that means. Anybody know what I'm talking about here? Okay, and so she... (laughs) So... (laughs) So she begins to process all of this stuff. And as she processes it and uses some of her intuition, she begins to sense that Boaz is subtly signaling that he would be willing to take on this role of kinsman redeemer if they would like for him to do that. Now, he doesn't come out and just say it because he's, he's a middle-aged man and he's saying it would be hard to just approach this younger woman and say, you know, would you like to get married? So he just kind of signals because he didn't think she'd have much interest in him. I mean, he's a, he's a middle-aged man. So, she, so he's like, you know, um, he says this, and, and, and Naomi puts it all together and says, I think what he's doing is that he's signaling his willingness to be a kinsman redeemer. And so she says to Ruth, she gives her this plan. And what Ruth is doing is she is subtly signaling to him, yes, we'd, we'd like for you to be our kinsman redeemer. 
I want you to notice Boaz's response, verse 10. He says, The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. Okay, now let me, I want to make my second point, and, and I'll explain it to you. Here's, here's the second point. Hope in a living God turbocharges friendships. Hope in a living God turbocharges friendships. And here's what I mean. As I was studying this passage, I kept noticing this phrase that Boaz uses. He keeps saying to her, he says, he says this kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. He says, you haven't run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And I kept wondering, well, what does he mean by that? When he says, he says, this kindness is greater than the one that you showed earlier. Well, the kindness that Ruth had shown earlier was a kindness to Naomi. Because if you remember what happened, Ruth gave up all that she could normally have expected to cling to for security. Remember, she left her homeland She left her family. She even left all of the gods there in her homeland to go back to Israel with Naomi and to just care for Naomi. She abandoned everything just to care for Naomi. The kindness that she's demonstrating now, which Boaz is saying is even greater, is this. Why does he say that? Why does he say it's even greater? Well, as I said a moment ago, Ruth is much younger than Boaz. If Ruth were only after her own interests she would have tried to attract a much younger man. Uh, Whether he was rich or poor, just she would have tried to attract a much younger man uh, nearer her own age, that's hard to say, to spend the rest of her life with. Instead, because she's seeking her mother-in-law's interests and her dead husband's interests, she chose Boaz because he could both provide for them and he could help perpetuate the family name as a kinsman redeemer. Okay, now just stop, ladies, and think about that. This is a woman who has put her own interests aside for the sake of her mother-in-law and her dead husband. Pretty remarkable. You know what the basis for most friendships is? The basis for most friendships is quid pro quo. I do something for you if you do something for me. Most friendships, when you really get down to it, most friendships are just business relationships. You do for me, I'll do for you. You don't do for me, I don't do for you. And this is where most relationships, it's where most friendships fall apart. Eventually, one person hurts the other person, uh, which requires quid pro quo, and then the relationship spirals downward. Or one of the people stops having anything to offer the other person in the relationship. But if you look at this relationship between Ruth and Naomi, here's my question. What did Naomi have to offer Ruth? Uh, Nothing. All she had to offer her was poverty. Uh, Life back in Israel... Uh, which meant no husband, no future, no white picket fence, uh, no babies to love, no HDT, HDTV to have, no uh, season ticket for foot. Wait a minute, that's what I would have wanted. What she would have wanted would have been different. But you know what I'm saying? None of that for her. The fact that the basis for this friendship is not quid pro quo is what makes this friendship so remarkable. Naomi wouldn't even be alive by this point if it weren't for Ruth. 
And if you think back to chapter 2 again, you'll remember this whole relationship began with Ruth telling Naomi that Naomi's God would become Ruth's God. Now, I've known, um, I've known a lot of couples uh, who fell in love. Like where the guy, maybe he grew up Protestant and his girlfriend or fiance is Jewish and he suddenly develops an interest in the Jewish faith. Um, he, in a sense, he's switching gods, right? But he's not switching gods because he's so much interested in God as much as he is in the girl. That is not what happened with Ruth. She didn't switch gods just because she uh, was interested in Naomi. She switched gods because she was blown away by the God of Naomi. Do you remember what preceded Ruth's declaration of loyalty to Naomi? It was Naomi telling Ruth, after all of this tragedy had happened, Naomi said to Ruth, you stay. Stay with, even though this would have meant Naomi's certain death, she said, you stay, Ruth, with your people. In the midst of her desperation and and tragedy, Ruth saw Naomi loving her with no self-interest at all. And Ruth says, any God that can make a person do that, I want. Both of these women's hope in a living God enabled them to love one another in a way that was completely self-sacrificing. No quid pro quo. And this is what I mean when I say that Uh, Hope in a living God turbocharges friendships. If God is dead, or if he's just dead to you, you don't have any cause other than yourself to live for. Everything, even the humanitarian things that you do, will all be about you. Hope in a living God enables people to actually live for someone other than, than themselves. And as a result, it takes relationships to places that ordinary friendships could never go. And it changes the way that people are involved in one another's life in ways that ordinary friendships could never go. Places that ordinary friendships could never go. Uh, Many years ago, a friend of mine from a previous church had uh, a long-lost friend who he had heard about who was uh, dying of AIDS. And his friend had contracted it through a uh, homosexual relationship. And this this was back in the 80s when... Not much was known about AIDS. Some of you who lived through that period of time, you'll remember how uncertain the medical community was about all of the ways in which AIDS could be passed on. And people in that, uh, everybody was kind of, was scared to death. And uh, this particular man who was dying of AIDS uh, had no one to care for him in the hospital. And so my friend, who later became an elder in the church that I pastored, uh, found out about this, and he would go to the hospital, and he would care for him, and he would even hold his, he would even hold this man's bedpan for him as this man vomited, and then he would clean him up afterwards. And I asked him once, I said, you know, this is many years later after it was over, I said, well, why did you do it? Why, why would you have been willing to do that? Why would you have been willing to risk your own life to do that? And, and he just said this, he said, He said, it's what Christ would do. And this is what I'm trying to say, that hope in a living God, it turbocharges friendships. It enables friendships between people to go to places 
that ordinary friendships could never go because you're able to get outside of yourself and live for someone, something other than yourself. It turbocharges friendships. And let me just say this, that this church is about, it's nothing if it's not about friendships. Look, if you're just coming on Sunday morning and you just come and you kind of sit and soak and you you listen to a sermon and you sing the songs and then you go right home and you don't build friendships with people here, let me tell you something, you're missing out on part of the explosive transformation that God has for you. Uh, I often meet people who, yeah, they go to church, but they seem absolutely bored with the gospel. They just don't, they're not convinced any, any longer that the gospel can make any real change in their life. And in almost every case that I meet people like that, I'll ask them, what are you involved in in your church? And the answer is always nothing. I go to church and I go home. And I want to tell you that part of the way that God brings about an explosive transformation in your life is through relationships with other people who have hope in a living God. And it turbocharges those friendships in a way that you see God through, your other pers- through the other person's relationship with you and you experience God in your relationship with them. It turbocharges friendship. And I want to tell you that there's more to this church than Sunday morning. You can walk out of here today and right out in the hallway, we've got a table back there that says experience community. And you can get involved in community groups in our church. We watch a, in every one of our community groups, we watch this video uh, it's, a, it's a video that, it's called an I Am Second video. It's a testimony of someone and how God has changed their life in some significant way. And then what we do is that we have questions associated with, he, with each one of those videos. And people sit around and talk about those questions together. And uh, just somebody was just telling me this past week that their, that their uh, group had been meeting for uh, a long time. But this is the first time that they'd ever done something like this. And that it, it, just, like it just exploded in a good way. I mean, exploded in a good way. They couldn't believe where they went in terms of the intimacy in their friendship. And I want to tell you that that's what we're, we're hoping that we can get is everybody in our church involved in a community group at some point. Because we believe that hope in a living God will turbocharge your friendships and then you will experience explosive transformation as a result. Text leaves us on a kind of cliffhanger of sorts. Watch this from verse 11. Boaz says to Ruth, he says, And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am near of kin, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. Stay here for the night. And in the morning, if he he wants to redeem, good, let him redeem. But if he is not willing, would would you just read that next little phrase? As surely as the Lord lives. Would you read that out loud with me? As surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. And the rest of the chapter ends much like chapter 2 in that Ruth returns home to Naomi and tells her everything that happened. Here's the third point that I want to make this morning. That hope in a living God catapults you across cultural barriers. Hope in a living God catapults you across cultural barriers. What do I mean by that? Well, okay, we don't know yet, at the end of chapter 3, we don't know yet whether Boaz will be the one who marries Ruth. And do not read ahead in your Bibles this week. That's right, I'm telling you, don't read your Bible. There is someone else who is actually legally first in line 
But I just want to say this, that Boaz's willingness to marry Ruth speaks volumes. I want you to understand what is happening here. What is happening is an interracial marriage is being proposed. Okay, do you understand that? Boaz is a Jew. Ruth is a Moabite. She's an outsider. She's not from the right people. And Jews don't marry Gentiles, especially Moabite. But Boaz says, as surely as the Lord lives, interesting that he says that, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Why would that matter? Why would the fact that the Lord lives, why would that matter so much to Boaz? Why is the living God so important to Boaz in marrying across a cultural barrier? Here's the thing. Understand this. If God is dead, or even if he's just dead to you, you will be defined by the only other thing that you can really be defined by, what your culture values. Look, we, I mean, we're all defined by something, every single one of us. If we're not defined by God, then we're defined by our culture. If your culture says, you've got to have a perfect family, you've got to marry the right person, and you've got to marry within the race, and um, uh, you've got to marry at a certain uh, demographic level, then you will kill yourself. If, if you're not defined by God, if you're defined by culture, you will kill yourself to get the perfect family. If your culture says you have to have a perfect body, a, a perfect career, a perfect social calendar, you got to hang with the right people, you will die for all of that because there's nothing greater to live for, no greater identity by which you can be defined. And not only that, but you will also scorn anybody who doesn't live in, uh, your, uh, in your circle or who doesn't live in the same way that you live. And if your culture says don't marry a Gentile, and you're not defined by a living God, you surely won't marry a Gentile. But when the gospel of the living God comes into your life, you begin to realize that if you have a relationship with God, you have an identity now that far exceeds anything that your culture values so dearly, and you are freed from the stifling barriers that have defined your life for so long, and you find in yourself a new longing to crush all of those cultural barriers, and to love the people whom you once disdained so much. Now, let me ask you something. Is that something that the city of Evansville could benefit from? Could it benefit from that? Could you envision a future for the city of Evansville that is so great that blacks and whites and Asians and Democrats and Republicans and Eastsiders and Westsiders (laughs) could cross? I know, I really got hard on that last one. Yeah, really preaching now, Jeff, you know. Could you envision a future in which all of those people could cross the dividing lines that separate us and see one another as bearers of the image of God, regardless of race or ideology? Could you see that? Could we benefit from that? It requires a hope in a living God. I want you to listen to this. Words of one of the greatest speeches in American history given by, of all things, a Baptist minister. Listen to this. You'll know these words when I read them. I have a dream. I wish I could do it justice the way he did it. I can't. But he said, I have a dream. When all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. Martin Luther King understood 
that, the, that only hope in a living God could really free us from the cultural barriers that divide, that divide us and catapult us across those barriers. You and I need hope in a living God. That's the only thing that will catapult us across those racial barriers. The city of Evansville needs people who have a hope in a living God, who are defined by something far greater than culture. Your family needs you to have a hope in a living God. Not a hope in a sentimental idea, not a hope in a lofty philosophy, not a hope in a code of conduct, not a hope in in some dusty doctrine among dead religions. You need a hope in a wild and active God who is on your side. The Apostle Paul was writing to his disciple Timothy, and he, and he, said, he, said, he said, that is why we labor and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all people. The living God to whom the Apostle Paul is referring and whom the book of Ruth points us is Jesus. The one who was crucified on a Roman cross outside the city of Jerusalem, with a sign above him that said King of the Jews, but who had Gentile blood coursing through his veins and who would call all of his followers friends and who would be our Redeemer. He was crucified. And for three days his followers believed that God was dead and all hope was lost until the grave opened and the living God appeared to them and he sent them to tell the rest of the world that hope is alive and his name is Jesus. Would you bow your heads with me and let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, We believe in a living God. Unlike every other religion in the world, we worship a living God. And we believe that that hope in a living God brings about explosive transformation in our lives. Lord, I pray that City Church would be a church that is characterized by hope and that the city of Evansville would sense that from our church that they would sense that there is something radically different about us, that we have experienced the power of the gospel, the, the power of explosive transformation that comes through belief in a living God. And as a result, all of the chains that bind us are, have been freed, that we've been released from all of those, that we are able to um, envision a future beyond our circumstances, that we are able to, to have friendships that go way beneath the surface and way beyond what ordinary human friendships, uh, where those go. And Lord, that we are the kind of people that we can cross every cultural barrier, that we love people regardless of who they are or where they come from, regardless of the the color of their skin, their race, their their creed. Uh, We we just love people. Lord, we worship you, a living God. And we thank you for the privilege of worshiping you this morning. Speak to us through your word. Challenge us and let us go out of here, people with a vision, because of our hope in you. It's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we worship and pray.